The following audio is from Shady Grove Presbyterian Church in Rockville, Maryland. Our mission is to follow Jesus Christ and labor for His kingdom both in our area and around the world. For more information about Shady Grove Presbyterian Church, please follow us on Facebook and visit ShadyGrovePCA.org. All right, well, if you want to follow along in your with an app or your, your Bible that's open, we're looking at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, uh, verses 13 to chapter 5, uh, verse 11. And the, where we're trying to go with this message is to bring encouragement. The title of the message is Encourage the Faint-Hearted. And I'm getting that from the end of the epistle where Paul writes and he says, uh, We urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. And those are just great instructions for any foreman, any father, any parent, any pastor, that we have to apply those things. We've got to admonish the idle. Republicans love to hear that. And encourage the faint-hearted. And then help the weak. And Democrats like to hear that. We need to hear both. They're both true. Be patient with them all. But the bulk is encourage the faint-hearted, the discouraged, the weary, those that are losing heart. And I think that's the bulk of the book because the bookends of the two passages that I'm going to read, there's only two imperatives in this text that I'm going to read, and they both say the same thing. Encourage one another. Encourage one another with these words. So the first passage is, is dealing with death, and the second passage as well. But they're The idea here is with each of these, we're to encourage each other. And so though we can't be face-to-face, I'm going to try to encourage the faint-hearted with these words. Because what we have here in 1 Thessalonians here at the end from these two uh, passages or pericopes that both end with encourage one another, is they're dealing with this great problem of death. And death kind of has, it, it kind of, death opens the door to two other big problems. And those problems are grief for those that remain. And that's a bereavement. It's, it's brutal. Death is this great interruption. And there's this incredible grief that we feel. That's the one problem. But then the other door is for those that have gone is the Bible talks about judgment. And that's very scary, that we will have to stand before God, our Maker, and give an account for our lives. And this passage, I think, the, older, the first passage, I think, brings more encouragement, or more, maybe to older people, because we've seen more loved ones uh, die. But the second passage, I think, is a word for younger people, to wake up, to be sober, that there is a judgment and to live in the day. And the resurrection is the tripwire that's going to bring about this answer to these problems of death, both of grief and of judgment. The resurrection speaks to all of this. It is the answer that we need. And I think the Christian faith is more compelling than naturalism or any of the other worldviews that can give an answer at the most difficult time, which is death. So listen to this, this passage, and uh, we'll talk about it. 
We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but, then, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. Let me pray again. Lord, I need help to draw out these truths that would minister comfort to the flock and to those who are listening in. And I pray that, Lord, you would also help them to understand these things so that Christ would become more important and that we would see the things of this world for what they really are in perspective. For we ask in Jesus' name, amen. We're going to follow an outline here, and the outline goes like this. What we have at the beginning here is what we believe. Verse 14 of 1 Thessalonians 4. We believe Jesus died and rose again. So we start with Jesus' resurrection. And Jesus' resurrection is this tripwire, which we'll talk about, that leads to these other things that are going to naturally flow from the resurrection. So because Jesus has been resurrected, he's also going to return. So we see that in verse 14 to 16. So we've got the resurrection in verse 14, and then his return in 14b to 16. And then that his return leads to our resurrection. Do you see that in 16b? It says the dead in Christ will rise first. And then that resurrection leads to our reunion. This is going to be the most incredible family reunion that's permanent forever. We will always be with the Lord. This grief that we experience now is very transitory. It's very temporary. 
This is permanent. It's forever, always with the Lord. And so from the big picture of eternity, this is a small window in which we grieve and are separated. There will be an incredible reunion. And so then in light of the reunion, then this next part deals with, well, when is he coming? Concerning the, the, the chronos and the kairos, the times and the seasons, when's it going to happen? I'm getting a lot of people sending me YouTube clips of, you know, these different signs and stuff. And so we'll talk about the, the two metaphors that are given here of the, the thief in the night and the woman in labor with, with a child. Those are the two similes to, to describe this. And then this is all a realignment. So 5, 1 to, to 8 is all a realignment. And then those last two verses are a reassurance. So we've got a lot of R's that we're going to work through, okay? So, and, and to begin with, it's just what we talked about at the beginning. The whole point is there were people that were dying. And Paul is writing because these believers felt like, well, what will happen to these people that have gone on before us? And, and is there a certain advantage to the people that are alive? And Paul's clarifying that. But what he's really dealing with here is we don't grieve as others who have no hope. And just to kind of get at that grief for a minute, I mean, we all know and we've experienced some grief in our life. And what we're experiencing now with the coronavirus is terrible. But it's not what it was like in 2004 on the Indian Ocean when the tsunami hit. And instantly, 230,000 people were killed. And half a million people were injured. I think maybe it was over a million people injured. 1.7 million homeless. Entire churches were just instantly wiped out, gone. 230,000 people gone. That wasn't very real to us because we don't live near the Indian Ocean. But this is real what we're experiencing. And I think, as I just was thinking about the song Fire and Rain by James Taylor, is such a vividly written, well-written song that we, you, when you hear the song, you're instantly hit with the emotion of grief. You know, I've seen fire and I've seen rain. I've seen sunny days that I thought would never end. I've seen lonely times when I couldn't find a friend. But I always thought that I'd see you one more time again. There's that loneliness. There, I mean, there's that grief. And the good news is you will see them again. You see, that's the, that's the point here of the good news for us, is that this isn't the end of the story, as this passage is going to elaborate on. Shakespeare has this quote about Hamlet, where Hamlet says about death, he says that the undiscovered country from whose born uh, no traveler returns. So the idea here is that no, once you go off to death, no, no traveler returns from there. We have one who's returned. Jesus is the returning king. And he returned on Easter Sunday, the third day. And so we don't grieve as others who have no hope because we believe that he died. He died and he rose again. And so when he rose again, 
this created a tripwire. Now, tripwire is something that you set up, and it's often a surprise. But a tripwire triggers lots of other things that are going to happen, right, with a tripwire. Maybe you can think of it like dominoes, or, you know, you hit the one domino, and they just, you know, keep going. And I love these little video clips where, and actually Tom and Tom Webb worked on one of these with Allie, and he sent me the clip that all around his house he had set up all of these things that, you know, the ball goes down and it hits this and it knocks over that and it triggers something and it sends that. And this thing goes all the way around the room and it took like 30 seconds to show you that the one little thing done here goes all the way around. Maybe, Tom, you could send that out to the church and I could send it out. But a great little point to a clip. It's like if I pull the fire alarm, that's a tripwire. There are going to be certain things that are going to instantly happen if I pull that fire alarm. There's going to be noises right away. There's going to be an instant call to the fire department. And the fire department is going to come. And they will be here in this building because it's happened. If you pull that thing, they'll be here in less than 10 minutes. They will be here. That's a tripwire. There's certain things that are going to trigger all the rest of these things that are going to happen. And when I was a really foolish young kid, I was calling the fire department at some girl's house, and we were sending out the trucks, and I saw them go by my house in Gaithersburg off of Bennington. And that was a tripwire because they didn't like that. And yes, they did trace the number. Yes, they did call back. Yes, they did talk to the parents. Yes, the parents told me to go tell your parents what you've done. Yes, I didn't tell them. Yes, I hid on that. Yes, they later found out about it. My dad might be listening to this. And my mom. And when they found out, let me tell you, the tripwire had reached. They applied the belt to the seat of the problem. And let me tell you, I got the biggest spanking that I ever got because I was calling the fire department and sending out trucks. I was bad and I got a huge spanking for that. Well, there's a tripwire that's happening here is that Jesus has risen and now that he's risen, that trips all these other things so that he can say, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. And then Jesus ascends into heaven, and he's reigning now. And he intercedes for his people, and he's coming again. But in the meantime, he's going to reign until all of his enemies are his footstool. And he's going to destroy the last enemy, which is death. And someday, we are going to be able to mock death, where it says, Oh, death, where's your victory? Oh, death, where's your sting? We will get to make fun at death someday, but this side, we don't make fun of it yet. But someday, we will get to do that. And Tim Keller has a great interpretation of what that means. What does it mean, oh, death, where's thy victory? Oh, death, where's thy grave? Here it is. Here it is. You, you can study the Greek all you want. Here it is. Na, 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 na. We will someday be able to mock death because death will be no more. That tripwire is going to happen. As in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. 
it is a certainty. It's just taking a while for those dominoes to all trip to finally get around. And, and here we are in the middle of the, of the dominoes, and they haven't all fallen yet. But it's going to happen. Jesus has been raised. He is going to return. Now look at this return. This return is incredibly visual. It's incredibly loud. And so when people talk about this secret rapture, I, I have no clue where in the world they're getting that. I mean, Jesus says that lightning will come from the east and be as seen as far away as the west, and so will be the coming of the Son of Man. And here you have three widths in verse 16, and they're pretty loud, aren't they, in verse 16? You've got with a cry of command from the Lord himself, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. That's pretty loud. And I like how John Calvin describes that. He says, let's see if I can find it. He says, as a commander summons his army to battle with the notes of a trumpet, so Christ will call the dead to him by his resounding proclamation, which will be heard distinctly all over the world. You see, Jesus said, all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Jesus said, don't even marvel at this. John 5, 28 and 29. Just as Lazarus said, come forth to Lazarus, and Lazarus came forth, all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. And so this return, follow, I got a question. When Jesus returns, does he return by himself? Does he return by himself? And the answer is, look at, look at what the Bible says. Look at chapter 3, verse 13. If you back up one chapter, we're told that the Lord is the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus, with all his saints. So when he returns, he's bringing all his saints with him. Okay? And then we're told here, in this passage, that says um, in verse 14, right in the middle, that even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who've fallen asleep. So those who've died, he's coming and he's bringing them with him. So I want you to, what's the problem that we have to think through here is the end of verse 14 and the end of verse 16. Because the end of verse 14 is telling us when he comes, he doesn't come by himself. He's coming with all his saints. So all who have gone before him and the people we've prayed for in this pastoral prayer, you know, here comes Erica, and here comes Sharon, and here comes Evie, and here comes Brett, and here comes Jim, and here comes William. They're, they're coming with Jesus when he comes. They're with him now, and they're not asleep. The, the saints are active in heaven. They're, they're praying. We see Jesus recognizing, conversing with, with Moses and Elijah. There is no soul sleep. They're with Jesus. The way I like to describe it is when you go to a wedding and you wait for the bride and groom and you wait for the bridal party, but you have hors d'oeuvres and you're hanging out and you're enjoying some good stuff and you're, you're enjoying the, uh, the wedding feast, but not fully. Because not until the whole bride and groom gets there, and a lot of times, then you move into the sit-down area and have the big sit-down party when everybody is introduced. So that's kind of how I would describe this this state of what we, 
what theologians call the intermediate state, is that they're coming with Jesus, and yet we're told at the end of verse 16, wait a minute, the dead in Christ will rise first. How can these both be true? How can he be coming with the saints in glory, and yet the dead in Christ are going to rise first? What's the answer to that? And the scriptural answer is probably best illustrated with the thief on the cross. Where the thief on the cross says to Jesus, you know, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says, today, you'll be with me in paradise. And yet, we just read about Jesus went into the grave. Jesus went down into a tomb. And he stayed dead for a time. And yet, he's also in paradise with the thief who also was dead and was buried. So the way that we explain this, I think the Westminster Shorter Catechism question 37 is one of my favorite all-time questions. And the question is, what benefits do believers receive from Christ at death? And the answer is, the souls of believers at their death do, uh, hmm, do immediately share in His holiness and immediately pass into glory. Let me see if I read this correctly. The souls of believers are at their death made perfect in holiness to immediately pass into glory. While their bodies, still united to Christ, do rest in the grave until the resurrection. And so there's this splitting apart. This death is this great interruption of even body and soul. And so 2 Corinthians even talks about longing to be further clothed. Is that The idea is that we long for the fullness, for our glorified body. And so even the, the saints that are with the Lord in glory, it's not the fullness of what new heavens and new earth will be. You see, ultimately where it's going is here. It's here where, where, where it's all going to come to fruition. Listen to this. Greg Beale, who is a, the best biblical theologian probably on the planet, he says this, New creation is the New Testament's hermeneutical and eschatological center of gravity. He says it's the dominating notion of biblical theology because new creation is the goal and purpose of God's redemptive historical plan. New creation is the logical main point of Scripture. New creation. And if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. It's already begun. But it's all going to be here. And we will be reunited body and soul. So I've described my eschatology as bowling. And some of you have heard this illustration before, but, and, uh, and many laughed the first time I shared it, as if I'm a big bowler or the congregation was big bowlers and would really get this. But when you go bowling and you throw one down like me and it's not a strike and you've got half the pin standing and half of them down, you go up and you hit a button. And when you hit the button, what happens? This thing comes down and it takes the pins that are standing and it lifts them up. See that in the text? They're going to lift up. And then the sweeper arm for all the pins that are on the ground, the sweeper arm wipes them clean. And then the pins come down again. There's my theology summed up in a nutshell, is that we will meet the Lord in the air. 
and he brings everybody with him. And the dead in Christ rise first, and then those that are alive, that are still alive, it says, we're going to meet him also. We're gonna, and, and, and that kind of brings out the idea of 1 Corinthians 15, 51, which a lot of nurseries have over their nursery that says, you know, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. And the idea is that for those of you that are still alive, you know, you're going to be changed instantly to glory. Not, you know, I get it for the kids too, but this is, it, it helps you remember this. This is for those who are alive, you will be glorified on the way up. Just as the people that are raised from the, the dead are going to be glorified and they will be reunited with their bodies. And notice we meet in the air, which is, has an interesting point to it because where does the prince rule now of Satan? Where's his kingdom? The prince of the power of the air. And so the idea is the finality of the mastery of Jesus's authority over heaven and earth is so complete that we meet him in the air to take him on his home turf because it's completely defeated. And we meet him there and then we're told in other places of the Bible there's going to be this great fire that will consume this earth. But then we will return here to a new heavens and a new earth because the center point of gravity is what? New creation. You're not going to be floating on a harp somewhere for eternity. That's not what heaven's about. It's right here on earth. Jesus rose in a body and he loves bodies. And you have a body that you're to glorify God with. And you will have a body when you return here to this planet. And it'll be a lot like Eden, but better. Acts 3.21 is one of these throwaway verses that we just kind of skip over. And you say, wait a minute. Look at what this verse says. Peter says that Christ must remain in heaven until the time comes for God to restore everything as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. He's going to restore everything. And it's the idea that the trees of the field will clap their hands and the kids won't just be carrying the palm branches. The palm branches will be clapping because they're attached to the trees because the king has come. That's the idea of Palm Sunday. It's Palm Sunday when the Lord returns. This is great news for us. Now, what's amazing are some of these little Greek words that are in this text that I'll try to bring out here. A couple of these prepositions. When the Lord returns, three times, what the word in verse 16, if you notice, it says he's going to come with a shout, with uh, the trumpet, and each time the with is used in verse 16, it's this little Greek word in, and it means in or with, and that makes sense. That's not the word that's used the other three times. So in 4.14, okay, we are told that we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and even so God will bring with him, that's a different word, that's the word soon, it better, better translated together with, it's a corporate idea. He's coming together with those who've fallen asleep. So don't miss that. It's better translated together. And then twice in verse 17, that, verse is, that word is used. So that we who are alive, who are left, will be called up together with them. And the word together is better translated at the same time. At the same time. So you that have this interesting theology of, you know, you've got to work that out. For, for me, I mean, at the same time, it's pretty clear. That at the same time, boom, when he returns, it's over. 
At the same time with them, together with them, is the idea. So at the same time, together, and then we'll always be with the Lord. Well, together, together. It's a family reunion, except family reunions are always a little weird on this side of heaven, are they not? Because sometimes families, there's just things that aren't right yet. But this, everything will be perfect. And what I think some of us are wrestling with, and hopefully this brings out a little bit, is what C.S. Lewis, if I can pronounce it properly, the word that he uses is this German word, sin sucht. And I'm probably not pronouncing it right, even though I listened to the pronunciation like 50 times of this German word, and those that know it better, forgive me. Sin sucht. And the idea of this word is an intense longing for something that has never been, and it's, it's, it's such an intense desire that we know that this longing for believers will someday have its consummation. And Lewis says, the longings, the, the sin sucht, he says, that's what the story's all been about. Narnia was all about sin sucht. The whole world of Narnia was about this intense longing. And the longing has a stab in it. It has an ache because it's not fully there yet. And it's the longings that you long for. You long for this to be true, but we're not there yet. You long to get on the other side of the door, as C.S. Lewis talks about. It's this intense longing with a pain in this life because you're not there yet. He says that's what all of his life has been about. That's what all of his books have been about. That's what Narnia has been about. Is that not what we're about? We have these longings. We groan. We, we're groaning for things to be made right. I loved watching Friday night with our Good Friday service. And here we are on Zoom, and nobody really wants to get off the line. It's a, I mean, if this was a regular time, would we be on Zoom for two hours looking at each other? But we love seeing each other because we long to be reunited. It's just a little taste of what the real thing's going to be, which will be so much greater than that and not some Zoom camera. We'll be glorified. We will be together with the Lord. This is going to be an incredible reunion. And Sunsukt will be consummated. All of these desires and longings for things to be made right and to be fully known, fully loved, fully understood. I mean, 1 Corinthians 13 describes it. We will be fully loved and fully accepted, and we will be glorified. And so, in light of that, Paul is giving this reassurance to believers that this is our reality because of the resurrection. But in light of that, he also says, okay, some people are wanting to know, well, when's this going to happen? I mean, is this it? Is this, you know, is this pestilence? I mean, this is a sign of the times. Is the Lord returning? And people say, you know, do you think the Lord is it's closer to, to coming now than he was before? And I would say yes. And every day I would say yes. Yes, he's closer than he was the day before. But should you still be thinking about leaving a, a legacy to your great-grandchildren? Yes. Yes, you need to be thinking big picture, long term, leaving legacy to the third and fourth generation. Yes, but yes, he is coming soon. 
And so the two imageries that he uses for the realignment for us to, to make this the reality of our lives is he gives two analogies. He says the Lord is coming like a thief in the night, right? And a simile is always like or as. So we've got a like and we've got an as. The like is the thief and the as is the labor pains. So we've got these two similes, so let's talk about them. So the first is a thief in the night. The interesting thing about thieves is they don't call in advance. They don't make reservations. They don't post on Facebook. They certainly don't send any postcards. They don't text you in advance. They don't send you any emails, no fax, no nothing. You wake up in the morning and surprise, we've been, somebody went through my car last night. Somebody took my iPod. You know, somebody took the, the, what I had in my car, right? A thief, if you had known, if he'd have just sent a postcard in advance to you, then you could have locked your doors, right? You could have been prepared. But thieves don't do that. And what Jesus is saying is that the Lord's return will be sudden. It will be unexpected. So as far as the date or time, he says, you don't need me to write this because I've already told you, Jesus has already made it clear that nobody knows the day or the hour only the Father. So Jesus has already made that clear. It will be a surprise. However, with the second analogy, he says, it's when people are saying peace and security or peace and safety. So there'll be everybody saying, oh, everything's fine, everything's great. But the idea here is the first idea is that it's sudden. The second, though, is that it's expected and that it's unavoidable. And so you can kind of see it coming. I mean, as... When someone is expectant, an expectant mother has a baby that's growing inside of her, there is going to be a delivery. It's going to happen. And so with Alexandra and Neva, you know, they, they get this pretty, pretty clearly. I mean, we knew that Esther and Caius were coming. But we were still surprised when we saw the picture, we saw the Facebook post, and we get the news, hey, they're finally here. So we were surprised as to the exact day, but we knew that it was coming. And Jesus is saying that's his return, is that you know that it's unavoidable. You know that it's certain, just as labor pains will come upon a pregnant woman. Okay, and, but here it's the imagery of not being able to escape. There's the idea of judgment that will come. And if you were living like I was living when I was calling the fire department and sending out trucks and doing things that certainly are worthy of punishment when parents found out, if you were doing things that are darkness type of things, and right now there's a serious uptick in pornography. Matter of fact, I mean, I saw the stats in Italy the very first day that the coronavirus broke. Pornography use went up 47%. Unbelievable. And it's been a big rise with people at home with things to do, nothing to do. And people are running to escapes. That's darkness. There, there are things that people do that are, that are in the dark. They're what Jesus calls the deeds of darkness, that light has come into the world, but people love darkness because, and they didn't come to the light lest their deeds be exposed. And so that imagery that I gave in the beginning is that, you know, here this congresswoman, she knows what the future is going to be, so she knows that her stock is in trouble, so she does something illegal and sells all these stocks when she's been privy to information that the regular public doesn't have. 
Well, Jesus is returning and everything's going to come into the light. And so his point is, is to live in light of the reality that if you're his, then you have to live in the light because you're already part of this kingdom of light. You're already part of this new heavens and new earth. It's already here, yet not yet in its fullness. So think about the imagery of Jesus coming. When he comes to earth, this is how it's described. John the Baptist's ministry was to give light to those who sit in darkness and are in the shadow of death. John comes to give light about Jesus for people that are in the shadow of death. So this kingdom is coming of light. And then Jesus comes, and the, some of the first words out of his mouth, well, the very first words were, repent, the kingdom is at hand. It's now. But the verse before that says, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and those dwelling in the region of the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. So the light has dawned in that Jesus came the first time. And when he returns is when the light reaches full day. But the idea is the light has already come. And so Jesus says, I'm the light of the world, and now we're to be the light of the world as we follow him, right? And whoever walks in me, Jesus says, will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus says, I come into the world as lights. Whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. So we have to respond to the light and get out of the darkness. And so that's what this passage is saying, is that you have to live in the light now. You can't sleep. You know, this isn't pajama time and pillows. This isn't pillow and pajama time that you're part of of the day that this darkness, that the old world is described in 1 John as this. This is how the Bible describes this. It says, the darkness is already passing away and the true light is already shining. Talking about the old world, the old kingdom. And so now, whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and him there's no cause for stumbling. So, but whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and doesn't know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. So you may be thinking to yourself, well, I don't, I don't really dislike anybody. Well, how would you know? Because darkness would be blinding your eyes <laughs> if you truly, but if you're harboring a grudge towards somebody, you're hating him. If you're not forgiving somebody, you're hating him. That's not love. Love covers a multitude of sins, and it's deep. Deeply love one another. And so if you're going to live in the light, you got to get out of the darkness, and you can't hold on to grudges, can't hold on to bitterness. You can't hate somebody and say, oh, I can can live in the kingdom. No, no. Get in the light. Get in the light is what this passage is saying. The idea here is that this new world has come, and what our world wants to say is, is live for the bucket list. You know, we have this bucket list mentality. A whole movie was made about bucket list. It was pretty funny. And where you got to do this, the, the, the idea is the train's only coming around once. I've got one opportunity to do all these things, and if I don't do it, well, then I will have missed out. And what this passage is making clear to us is, no, there is going to be a new heavens, new earth. This is, this is not the end. This is just the beginning. And this... 
grief of death is just very, very temporal, very transitory. This is permanent. And when he returns, the last part is the realignment. I mean, the reassurance. These last verses are just such great encouragement. So what he's saying to us is, because we belong to the day, let's be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and the helmet of hope for salvation. And the idea is this. As I've said before, hope, if you think of an engine, and I'm not a mechanic, but I'll do my best. With an engine, you have to have combustion to do anything. And combustion involves three things, right? It involves air, you have to have fuel, and then you have to have spark, and then you have combustion. And combustion, well then, that's the hope. You have to have the hope, which is the combustion. The hope turns the engine, and the engine of faith now begins to operate. And then you have a steering wheel of love that starts to lead you in life to actually start loving people and doing good works because there's been a combustion that has happened by hope that's because of the resurrection and knowing all this is true. And now this engine is started of faith and I'm living by faith. And now the steering wheel is leading me to love and good works. That's the idea here is put that on. Put on that hope of salvation, breastplate of faith and love and continue to do the good works that he's ordained for you to walk in. And then the last part of this reassurance is God hasn't destined us for wrath. So if you're here and you're scared, or you're listening at home and you're scared, put your trust in Jesus Christ. He won't, these arms will not fail you. Those who believe in him, those who believe that he died and was raised, and those who put their trust in him, he hasn't destined us for wrath, but to possess salvation, to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that. And let's just pick up these two Greek words and I'll close. These are two Greek words, huper and henna. Who died for us. The, word, the Greek word is huper for for. And it's a much more alive word than just, oh, he died for us. No, he died as a substitute in your place on your behalf. It's somebody who stood in your place and took your sin. That's what huper means. So he took your sin, henna clause, this is big in Greek. A henna clause is for the purpose of or, or for the result that it accomplished. So another tripwire. He died for us so that, for the purpose of what? What was the purpose of why he died? So that whether we're awake or asleep, it doesn't matter. We're with him. We're together with him. Whether we sleep or awake, we're with him. So encourage one another with these words. I was reading last night a Spurgeon sermon, and I came across this before I turn off the, my reading last night. It says this. Spurgeon said, There shall be no Savior without the saved ones. There can be no elder brother without the younger brethren. There can be no redeemer without his redeemed. We are his fullness, and he must have us with him. We are identified with him. So the reunion is together we will always be, always be, always be with the Lord is the idea here. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the assurance that this passage brings to our heart and lives. Help us to realign now our lives in light of it. 
May you bring hope and faith, and may it lead to love. Love for you, love for one another, love for others. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.